0: Okay, everybody, welcome to again CS50, they like to call it. I think it's a very sciencey part of the campus, am I right? about that? Super sciencey. Uh, I visited the restroom earlier. no it's a lot of detail, but uh, it was in the geology building, and so I saw rocks and there's a meteorite exhibit over there, and rocks and pictures and things. <laughs> Riley, I was just waiting for you to leave, but Thanks for serving us tonight, and all the musicians and uh, everybody else that put together a phenomenal sophomore video for the students. That That's definitely in the category of, um, I would say, Crossroads Academy Awards. So it, it'll be nominated this, this spring for sure. I have no doubt about that. Uh, while, I, while I wander through my mind here, will you open your Bibles to... Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 14. Really excited about this chapter. If you've been with us for a few weeks, uh, you know that we're going through the life of Abraham. Uh, Abraham is this significant person according to the three you know, big religions in the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all revere Abraham as a, a father, a patriarch. He holds special uh, significance and importance in all three of the world's major religions, as they call them. And that's certainly true in Christianity. And we've seen the account of Abraham's life, a very detailed account in the book of Genesis that starts in chapter 12. And Abraham, as you found out, if you've read chapter 12, and if you haven't, I sum up for you. It's my job. Uh, Abraham was not... Uh, raised in a Sunday school class. He was not a good moral kid. He was not someone of, you know, massive political significance. He wasn't uh, some big deal in the ancient world. He was a, uh, just a man, an elderly man, actually, from a land called Ur, a place in Mesopotamia, uh, the east side of the Euphrates River in that ancient Near Eastern place, And he was like all the people in that region, a worshiper of various gods and goddesses, until one day everything changed for Abram, that was his name, uh, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God who the book of Genesis says is the creator of everything in this world, uh, revealed himself. He spoke personally to Abram, and he didn't just introduce himself, he instead commanded Abram to be his follower in this great moment in Abraham's life that would become a defining moment, he has to decide if he's going to stay with his people and his family and his gods and goddesses in his society, in whatever role he had, or if he's going to leave all that behind because of this revelation from a God he did not know until that moment. And Abram becomes this first example to us, of a profound kind of faith, a faith that the Bible uses throughout all the way to the New Testament to demonstrate to all who would have faith going forward what real faith looks like. Abraham becomes an example of faith, faith exemplified. And he does so by that initial act of obedience because faith is always responsive, In other words, faith doesn't come out of nowhere or thin air. It's kind of the common misnomer. People talk about faith being blind. Faith is usually something that's seen as being uh, in hostility to the geology building, Uh, something that is anti-science. There's math and science and measurable stuff, physical properties of this universe. Uh, What was the thing we were talking about at Covell today? That was some kind of chemistry that's really, really tiny. Quantum chemistry. Thank you. Again, I went to seminary. I'm kind of a, you know, a history major, not my jam. So there's, there's that is how people normally think. And then they think there's stuff like, you know, the Bible and Peter Pan and, you know, stories that, that kind of thing. But our God is a God of history, and faith doesn't come out of anywhere uh, out of, or out of nowhere or out of thin air or out of imagination. But instead, biblical faith, as it's presented in Scripture, is the response of a person to the revelation of God. And so Abram, like all true faithful people, responds to God's revelation of himself and leaves behind his people and leaves behind his society and leaves behind his gods and goddesses and follows after the one true God, the creator God who self-identifies himself to Abram, and he follows him. But like all real faithful people, Abram is imperfect, and I think that's another thing that people don't understand. They think that Christians think that they're perfect. Christians think that everybody else is wrong, we're right, everybody else is uh, dirty and immoral, and we are some holy, wonderful, uh, you know, morally lovely people. Uh, we never hit our hands on the music stand or, or anything like that. So... But that the story of Abraham, I think, is instructive to us as well, because once you get to the next chapter in Abraham's journey, you find out that he is actually a flawed character, and that his faith is imperfect, because we're fallen people, like we just prayed and sang about. Uh, There's something to us, not just of our worthiness, that God would look on us with favor and send his son to die in our place, that he would pursue a fallen creation, But there's also something of unworthiness in us. There's a kind of unworthiness to us, a sinfulness, a a rebellion that's in our very heart. And that rebellion is evidenced in the shortcomings of our faith. Even for those who are faithful, even those who are believing, have flaws. And so Abraham's faith is also flawed in certain areas. And that's the story of him booking it from God's promised land and taking kind of a circuitous journey down through Egypt. And the text isn't really clear if that was a big fat sin or not. But what was a sin was Abram deciding to resort to scheming and to conniving. He pretends that his wife is his sister to try to protect her. It was nothing weird like that, but try to protect her from uh, some Egyptian that might want to club Abram and get a fresh wife. And so he comes up with this idea that it'll put him in like a bargaining position and he can you know, or something. We don't know exactly what he's thinking, but he was thinking. He was scheming. He had a plan to protect his wife as he went through this pilgrim journey, and it was a bad idea, and it backfired all over Abram because he didn't realize that the potential suitor would be a man who thought he was God uh, named Pharaoh, and he doesn't have to barter with anybody. He just says, that wife, I'll take her to my pyramid. Thank you very much. And so he steals, and I know that's not what the pyramids were for, but... Just like Egyptian, work with me. It's a story. So it's a story about a story. So we we pull we pull he pulls Sarah and God decides that he's going to take over the story once again. He's going to rescue the flawed faith of Abram and cause all kinds of weird diseases to go onto Pharaoh's house and all Pharaoh's servants. Uh, Just a way of protecting Abram's wife. And uh, they decide the Pharaoh decides along with his you know closest companions uh she's great sarai is but she's not worth whatever this malady is. Uh, I don't know if their parts are falling off or they have boils or what it is, but it's not cool and it's not worth it. And so they kick her back to Abram. God solves the problem. Abram leaves Egypt even more wealthy than when he came prefiguring the Exodus to come, but that's a whole nother story. And then uh, last time we were together, we see that Abram has bounced back. His faith has responded to trial responded to its own failure by becoming even stronger. That's what's awesome about uh, this this section in Genesis that we looked at last time into Genesis chapter 13. Remember, now Abram is no longer a schemer. Now he has such confidence in the sovereignty of God. and, And part of that has just come from having his faith tested and from seeing God's faithfulness. And I think that's something that we can benefit from, is is the longer you're a Christian, the longer you walk with God, the more you will see the faithfulness of God played out in your life. Not only will you learn about it in the Bible, but you will see evidence of the faithfulness of God in your life all around you the longer you walk with God. With imperfect faith, you will see God continually show himself to be faithful. And so as God was faithful in Abram's life, preserving his line and family and the promise that he made to Abram in Egypt, he now brings Abram to the the place where he has so many possessions, so many camels, so much gold and silver and so much goods and peoples and servants and everything else that his nephew Lot, someone who is not underneath the blessing of God in any direct way, uh, has also received blessings and benefits from being associated with Abraham. And so now they are up on a precipice overlooking all of God's promised land, promised to Abram, not promised to Lot. And Abram in this great act of magnanimity, of large heartedness, of great souledness, says Lot, you have so many possessions. I have all these possessions. Our herds are getting mixed up. Our herdsmen's are starting to. herdsmen's. that's the plural. It's either herdsmen or herd I, uh, but <laughs> multiple herdmen. Nigh. So uh, you pick the land that you want. And in this great large-souled act of generosity, which I think is also a, uh, an attribute of real faith, of Abraham's magnanimity, he's so So completely assured that God will keep his word no matter what, that he's able to say, take whatever you want. Take the best land. And Lot, if he was a man of righteousness, and I think at this point in the story, he's not yet. He does become one according to the New Testament, but we're a long way from that. And Lot decides to take, of course, the best land and the land closest to Las Vegas, Las Vegas in the ancient world was called Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a place of notorious wickedness chapter 13 tells us all about it we'll do a whole study on that in chapter 19 and i'll get in trouble and it'll we'll, we'll be together it'll be fun so that that's that's what's happening in the story lot takes this most fertile land this most abundant land and on the very edge of the promised land the part that's the closest to sin city the part that's rampant with compromise the the evil of that land was legendary And Lot was flirting with danger. And that brings us to the story we're at tonight. And the story we're at tonight to introduce chapter uh, 14 to you, it seems like one of those places in the Bible where you're like, what in the world does this have to do with my sophomore year? It's the story of nine battling kings in ancient Near Eastern geopolitics. And you're going to want to hang on to this. Because I don't know if there's a chapter in Genesis that's more helpful to a college student. And part of the reason is it's so surprising. It really is a story of an ancient war and some kings and people groups and city-states that were a big deal back then, but aren't a big deal now, even in those who study the history of Mesopotamia. But it teaches us something, something that's so important as people of faith. And that's the lesson I want to grab onto tonight. Uh, That's what I want you to see in this scripture passage. Uh, The lesson from this chapter is that God blesses Abraham with this great victory over all these powerful kings that invaded the land that God promised to Abraham. And Abram responds to that blessing with this demonstration of loyalty and commitment that I think that's the big picture here. The big picture here is that God blesses Abraham with victory over these kings. Abram goes to war, to actual physical war, and does this battle of his faith against these guys who stole Lot, his nephew, from the nice land he chose, one of the consequences of the choice he made. But Abram, in another act of large heartedness and generosity, goes and rescues Lot, defeats all these kings. And then at the end of the story, he's presented with a choice. He can either be loyal to this other God worshiper, our fellow God worshiper of Yahweh named Melchizedek, or he can have a very lucrative deal with this other king, the king of Sodom. And that's the whole, the whole chapter. Now, again, what does it have for sophomores? What's it have for juniors, for that matter? It doesn't have much for seniors. They're already checked out. Um, <laughs> And there's great hope that it has something for freshmen, but let me, let me try to give it to you this way. Have you ever felt inconsequential? Have you ever felt small, insignificant? Have you ever felt like your life doesn't matter that much? I mean, I wonder when you, when you look at the headlines, you know, the ticker on the bottom of the TV in the student union building, or the news on your iPhone. You hear stuff about Putin and Trump. You hear stuff about uh, the democratic nationals and the the preparations for our national election. Or perhaps you hear about other issues pertaining to geopolitics, things in uh, Iran or uh, issues in uh, the larger world maybe you, you think about this world and you think about some of the problems that this world faces. You think about massive poverty in Africa or maybe you think about politics in a larger country than ours like China and you think about what happens in that place and when you think that way, when you think about maybe large corporations, maybe you're into business or, or maybe you're into Uh, advancements in technology, and you think about those things, and you think about your life, especially as a Christian. On a campus with tens of thousands of other students, I I wonder if you've ever felt small, inconsequential. I I wonder if you feel like what's happening maybe even in this room on a Friday night. I mean, we got bounced from Broad so some kids could take a test in there. We are just not a big deal, right? <laughs> and so maybe you've you've been prone to think that way. You've been prone to think about, you know, do I matter to God? In the big picture of history. Maybe you're a history major. I don't know if we have any history. Is there any history majors? My people. It's like two of you. Come on, my homies. <laughs> And so you think about the unfolding of world history, or you think about the, the nuances of colonial America, or whatever it is that you study, uh, the high Middle Ages, and you think you know, being historical, not hysterical, historical makes you realize just you know, our span of life is so small, and this world is so big, and this campus is so big, and the headlines don't have us in it. So why do we matter on the stage of world history? Why do we matter in geopolitics? That's where Genesis chapter 14 wants to show you that the man or the woman of faith is of tremendous consequence in God's economy. So rather than feeling small and inconsequential, rather than feeling that the the difficulties that you face as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a follower of God, are something of insignificance, something of minute value in the unfolding of world history, I want you to know that if you are a person who follows God by faith, if you're a person who follows God by faith, your life matters in an extraordinary way to God. What God is doing in this world is not centered around who it seems to be centered around, the people who dominate the headlines in the entertainment industry or those who might win a Nobel Prize. Instead, God's economy is dominated by faithful followers of God. They're at the center of his plan. They're at the center of his program. They're at the very heart of what he's doing in the world. And so if you've ever thought for a second that you don't matter, I want you to hear a weird story of geopolitical movement, of an ancient battle involving nine different kings from ancient Mesopotamia on the wrong side of the Euphrates River, And I think that you might see that your life and your faith really matters to God. So let me read it to you. Uh, We'll we'll look at it in two parts, okay? And I'll just read you the first part. Uh, Some of you like to take notes because you're godly. So I I have an outline. I wrote it in my iPhone and I will give it to you. Point number one, it's just two points tonight. Why why must we do more? Number one, you've been hard at work all week. Just two points. Number one, verses one through 16, nothing can threaten the promised blessing of people of faith. Nothing can threaten the promised blessing of people of faith. Nothing can threaten the promised blessing of people of faith. And the person of faith, the person of God we're interested in tonight is Abram. Chapter 14, verse one, and I'll go through verse 16, and then we'll look at the second point. Number one, and it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedor-Leomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, that is Zoar. And those came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served uh, Ched or Leomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Ched or Leomer and the kings that were with him, came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavev, Kiriathiaim, and the Horites in their Mount Sierre, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And yes, I am pronouncing these with a Hispanic accent. (laughs) I'm from New Mexico. It's how I roll. I used to live on a street called Juan Tabo. What do you want from me? So verse seven, then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedor omer king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amram-fel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. And then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Escol and brother of on air, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Don. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Nothing can threaten the promised blessing of the people of God. People of faith. What a wild 16 verses. I mean, I, I need to rest my tongue. There's so many names there, right? Right? To summarize what happened, if you didn't get it, you just read verse nine. And you'd almost wish that Moses, when he jotted this stuff down, would have summarized it for us. Four kings against five. That's the point. Okay? So everything that happened there was to tell you four kings against five. But I want to note a few things, maybe three things, just in this kind of setup of understanding what really matters in a story like this, because I think it helps us understand how God thinks about people who follow him. Did you notice all those parenthetical statements? That is Zoar. You know, it's like explaining what these places are called for later readers. So when liberals, God bless them, uh, read texts like this, they like to say, well, these are all kings who have no mention in extra biblical writings. And that is true. None of these kings, these people named here uh, in this first paragraph are mentioned in uh, some of the you know, classic places where you can find the names of kings in tells and scribes or in uh, scrolls and everything else. You can't find them there. And so they say, this is made up stuff. I don't think that's why this is here. I don't think it's so fictitious. I think the abundance of specificity is one of the reasons we can believe this very, very ancient account. Uh, There's been lots of kings and names mentioned in the Bible that are correlated in other ancient records, lots and lots from Babylon and even from Mesopotamia, one paragraph we have here where they're not. I don't think that's a huge problem in my apologetics. It doesn't really give me any pause in my faith. And I wouldn't be surprised if a headline came out 10 years from now, where they found some rock uh, somewhere uh, near the Euphrates in Iraq, uh, and they found the name of one of these kings. It wouldn't give me more confidence than I already have in the Bible, uh, nor would it undermine anything about my confidence in the Bible. I think the first thing I want to tell you is just the Bible presents itself not as a literary um, imagination or a literary creation first and foremost. It presents itself in a very straightforward manner. And so the Bible, though not written as a science textbook and not written to be a study of ancient geography, is intending to present to you something that actually happened. And when something we have in the Bible is correlated by something in archaeology or something in the, the natural sciences or something like that, it should not give Christians a kind of confidence that they lacked before in Holy Scripture. I mean, faith does involve, remember, responding to the revelation of God. We don't believe because of a preponderance of evidence. We don't believe in the resurrection because 500 people witnessed it. I mean, that correlates our faith. That may, in some ways, help you in your apologetics efforts or maybe would help you as you study uh, reasons that Christians believe. But please understand that the reason you're a believer is not solely or simply because Christianity is reasonable. That isn't to say that Christianity lacks reasonableness. And so I think it's important that you strike that balance, that, okay, we're more than willing to admit that these kings don't have corollaries in ancient history and I promise the rest of the sermon won't be as boring as this part. But I think it's equally important for you to know that your faith does not rest on extra biblical sources. So what we have here is we have an account written to us as actual history and written with such care that he wants his readers to know that these places have been renamed to these other names. To me, that in and of itself is evidence of the historicity of an account like this. You see, this place, these many centuries before, was called this. But you, modern reader, would know it as this. Those little parenthetical statements are something to me that's a good reminder that what we're reading here is not Mary Poppins. What we're reading here is not Peter Pan. What we're reading here is something that is definitely from actual human history. And just because we don't have all the correlating arguments, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not true. So that would be a first thing. It would be a balance about both the historicity and the we have no need for more evidence than what we have here in the text. A second thing I would note here is that all the names are kosher. And I don't mean they're Jewish. I just mean that they're cool. In other words, those who study languages and those who study ancient geographical stuff would tell you that, yes, these names are the right kind of names. In other words, there's nobody in here named Jeffrey. It's just not the kind of name they used back then. So there is no Obvious problems in this text where Zoyabim and Aramfel and Shinar, both the place names and the kingly names, are something that have historical cred. They make sense, they're not fantastic, they're not made up. The other thing that you want to notice, and this is the third thing, is that this geography is authentic- authenticatable, it is verifiable. The Dead Sea region is probably the size of England, this whole area. And the journey being described, not just Abram's journey from Ur to the promised land, but these kings going around the bottom of the Dead Sea, that's still a place that has tar pits. You notice they were mentioned in verse 10, the Valley of Siddim. Now, there was probably a lot more tar pits back then because tar became useful to peoples in time, but at that time, it wasn't useful except for a trap for these kings to get stuck in and to desperately need a shower. So it affected the outcome of the battle, but the geography of this thing is all very vivid, all very real, all completely correlates with the geography of that place today, Okay, that's enough about my three points to university students who may have apologetical issues with a text like this. Okay? Now, back to our main point. Our main point, remember, is that how in the world do we see this have anything to do with our faith? Well, if you were back in this day, these would be the Putins. These would be the uh, Kim Jong il. What's his name? On the horse, I love that picture of him on the horse. I love it so bad, I want it framed. I want a horse like that. Those scary political leaders in the world today, the mega powers that make the headlines, they would seem to be the focus of this text, especially that cat with the most difficult to pronounce name, Leo Leomer. That guy was a big deal. It's clear in the text, he was a big deal. But what's fascinating about this story is that this whole mess of four kings against five only matters to the Genesis account so far as this huge battle between city-states, which is what these were, you know about uh, city-states, you learned about them in the sixth grade, we did flashcards about this this week at my house, city-states, and these little city-states were vassals or servants to these other powers and they had access to both tar and to things like copper that was used for uh, weapons of war and farming implements and, and way out in the desert where some of these powers were coming from that had these under vassal control. They controlled these city-states and all these city-states were in rebellion and so these powers had to come and keep them in check. was was this was, This was... CNN, not fake news CNN, big time CNN. There would have been reporters on the ground. This would have been international headlines. This is a description of massive international geopolitical and military warfare. This is a huge deal. This is a society in chaos. This is everyone fearing for their lives. This is a invasion of kings against kings. This is ancient warfare. It would have been bloody, violent. There would have been captives. Women and children would have been involved in the the massacres, the uh, the taking away of possessions. This was full scale ancient warfare. And as far as God's concerned, this is a story about Abram, one elderly holder of a promise. It's as if we can look at a story like this and recognize that the big wigs in the world waging war, doing politics, making headlines, blowing stuff up, fighting each other are really only a an extra On the set, where the center stage is God's unfolding of his promise to Abraham that he gave in chapter 12. You see, in chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham you will be a great people, and I will give you a land, and you will be a blessing to all the earth, and those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. This story for these 13 chapters or whatever is unfolding. That God has a promise to his people to bless one man and from that blessing create a nation that will be his covenant people and from that nation bring the blessing to the entire world. You see, this promise is of greater importance to God than this politics. And that should be helpful to us. Not because we should be ignorant or uninvolved from political things. We certainly can engage those things from a biblical worldview, but we ought never to lose sight of the center of God's plan on the world stage. Apparently, the only thing that made these battles come out, and I think maybe one of the reasons we don't have Ancient correlation in historical records back then is, well, again, I keep going back to this like you care. Uh, I I don't think these were that big of a deal. I think there was skirmishes like this all the time with those city-states. Also, the records this far back, not quality. So why did God write it down? I think he inspired this to show us that in all, of, in all of the world stage, God's eye is still on Abram. Because it wasn't that it was five against four, and it wasn't the drama of tar pits slowing down the battle, and it wasn't even the Sodom and Gomorrah kings, these wicked kings that we'll factor later in chapter 19. The point is, is they got stuck in the tar. And because they got stuck in the tar, they had to change course. And because they changed course, they had to go to the hill country. And because they went through the hill country back to Sodom and Gomorrah, they just so happened to run into someone who had massive amounts of resources, camels, donkeys, livestock, goods, servants, women, children. And they said, since we just got kind of hounded in that battle and had to run, well, here's something that we can take and make our own. And make a profit at the end of the day as marauding hordes. And so we'll take Lot, his wives, his daughters, his livestock. And please remember, this was a real tragedy for Lot. We don't know how many of his servants died. We don't know how many of his family members were harmed or harassed. I mean, this wasn't polite war. There was no NATO back then. And so they take Lot And the only reason Lot matters in this story is because he is connected to Abram. And the reason Abram matters in this story is he's connected to God's promise by faith. This should give us all a greater perspective on how we fit into world history. There is a great chance that we should not be so arrogant to think that God only cares about geopolitics. It might be that the heroes of God's story right now are sitting on the edge of their kid's bed praying with them at night. It might be a mom of an eight-year-old that is a hero in God's story right now. And what God is doing doesn't necessarily have much at all to do with what is really mattering on the world stage right now. It's a warning to Christians to not have quiet time in the headlines. And I think there was a former generation of Christians who were really into that. It was kind of part of their eschatology study. And so they were wondering, like, you know, something would happen. An embassy would get moved. Or I used a modern example. I'm sorry for that. Um, And so they wondered, like, oh, what does this have to do with God's final plan? You know, it's Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Oh, maybe I can find something in Revelations that will give me something to yell about. No, there's not, but I'll find it. And I'll use numerology if I have to. And I think you end up studying the Bible more like people study Kabbalah than you should actually study the scripture. And you end up doing exegesis from the headlines. And when really, if you had God's priorities maybe you would see that what's on the center stage of human attention isn't always on the center stage of God's attention. Could I give you one example? Flip over in your Bible to the book of Luke. Just really quickly, a quick example. You could look at the beginning of Luke chapter two. In those days... Caesar Augustus. Okay. You want to talk about something that's mentioned in extra biblical writings? I'm pleased to introduce you to Caesar Augustus. Sort of a big deal in the Greco-Roman world. His kingdom spanned some, you know, three million, the, the, the influence of, of Rome was over three million souls. I mean, this was the definition of a superpower. And the text presents this name, famous in this time all the way to our time. And it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. He wanted them all counted, all 3 million of them. I mean, that's impressive. That's headline dominating. It's on the news every day. This is the story in every village, in every city, all throughout the Roman Empire. Why is this happening? Verse 2, this was the first census that took place when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and they were expecting a child. While we were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Caesar Augustus, a big deal? Or a pregnant lady, a teenager and her husband having to relocate at a very inconvenient time to fulfill a prophecy 800 years old. Do you see how what God is doing isn't always what the whole world has their eyes on? Jennifer Aniston opens an Instagram account and two days later has 13 million followers. What would you do with it? 13 million, all eyes are on the gram. What if God doesn't give a rip? about the gram? (laughs) What if he doesn't need a celebrity to make him famous? What instead of chapter three of Luke? I said I'd only give you one example. You get two for the price of one. You can't complain about that. Chapter three of Luke in the 15th 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Let me tell you, you want a big deal from history? Look up Tiberius Caesar. When Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Harold, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Etruria, and Trachonitis, and Lysinus, Terek of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. What? You just had a rattle off of names that you can take a class at UCLA on the... Uh, intertestamental period, they wouldn't call it that, but uh, you could take a class on that. You could take a class, you could be a classics major and study Greco-Roman stuff. You could do classes on every single one of these dudes. They're all a big deal. And what is the point of Luke chapter three? There is a wild man who has devoted his life to God and he dresses in camel hair and he eats grasshoppers. That's the point. Weirdo dude in the desert, not Tiberius Caesar. Because in the grand scheme of things, what matters to God is those who are holding on to his promise. Look, his sovereignty is inclusive of all of it, but his covenant is not. And so God is here in this text, back to Genesis, showing us that the world stage is unfolding and rioting in this massive war involving these nine different kingdoms of city-states and vassals and military and political history of all these kings. But what matters is that God has a heart for Abraham. And I hope you realize that God has a heart for you because Abraham is going to get involved in this. Abraham has nothing to do with these kings, nothing except perhaps that they invaded the promised land. But the story isn't about him to them. It becomes about him when they take his nephew Lot. And Abram responds. He responds in a real world way. He, he fights. And sometimes faith involves a fight. Faith isn't all spiritual stuff, invisible stuff. There's actual physical things that you'll face in this life. And Abraham faces one of these things in an act of war because his guy got taken. And so it just so happens that Abram, Abram is cool, like a a Clancy novel. He's cool, like a a Netflix Navy SEAL special. Uh, Abram has, check it out in verse 14, 318 fighting men. It's Abram's Navy SEALs. This is a cool military, paramilitary group. This is like the original Mossad. They are going to gather in the night. They are going to split, and they're going to conquer a force much larger than themselves. And it's just a very cool story. All the the guys who like military history just say yay. So that's what happens here. (laughs) He divides his forces against them at night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursues them and whips them. And Abram fights the fight of faith and Abram wins and Abram experiences yet again the blessing of God because of Lot's carelessness. But I think I'd want you to see that there's a real battle here, that there's nothing fake about this. This is, sometimes we're prone to think about our Christianity, our faith as rest and joy and, peace and confidence. But the New Testament portrays not just those things, but especially the book of Ephesians talks about deep spiritual battles against the hosts of wickedness, against the powers of darkness. And there are issues of life that involve physical life in a battle of faith. And Abraham prefigures that for us, at least in a sense but that's the first half of the story. It's that nothing can threaten the promised blessing of the people of God. Not five kings, not four kings, not tar pits, not geopolitics. God's promise is intact because God's people will always be preserved. And so God takes care of Abram. One note, verse 13 is the first word, use of the word Hebrew in the Bible. You know, there's no Israelites yet because Jacob hasn't been born and his name will be Israel, but Abram is here called the Hebrew. Some people think it's an anachronistic mention, but it's not. We don't know exactly what this word means. For a long time, Bible scholars thought it meant aperu. It was an ancient word about people who wandered like sojourners. They don't think that anymore. Linguists have studied the concept of Hebrew, that word, and they think it means one who crossed over one who crossed over. And so at the center of this story that seems to be about warfare is just this mention of this man who crossed over. Crossed over what? Well, he crossed over that big river in pursuit of God's promise. And he crossed over from his former life in Ur and his false worship to the following of Yahweh. And so here at center stage, again, we see Abraham. There's a second part, and this one's a little more simple. Verses 17 through 21. 21. And it's this, the world's blessings and God's blessings must be discerned by people of faith. The world's blessings and God's blessings must be discerned. They must be evaluated. They must be weighed by people of faith. In other words, I hope you heard that you are not peripheral to what God is doing in the world. He is outworking a story of redemption in you but that doesn't involve you floating or coasting or just waiting for that story to unfold. You actually are involved in that story. And this chapter ends with this mysterious and wonderful account of of Abram's victory, his rescuing Lot because a slave comes and tells him that he's needed. And so he sends his night troops out. He defeats them. But look how the story ends in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre, let them take their share. Abram experiences this amazing victory. And he's reminded that God will never break covenant with his people. Abraham's not technically covenant man yet, that happens in the next chapter, but God's made him a promise. And he's believed and acted on that promise. But what do you do with this little story? Well, I hope you see it's two choices. And that's where I'm talking about this, the necessity of making a choice, the necessity of discerning between alliance with the world and alliance with God because that happens in a battle for faith. And it's how this story of Abraham's great success concludes. You see, Abram has won the battle and now he's approached by two different kings. One, a mysterious and shadowy figure, Melchizedek, king of Salem. He's apparently the king of the area that would become Jerusalem. And he is clearly a follower of the same God as Abraham. And here Abraham finds someone. And he hasn't found anyone before who worships the same God he does. And so in this incredible moment, Abram finds fellowship. He finds a a Yahwehist. Some mysterious king coming out of nowhere, out of no place, some little lumpy mountains in Zion, and this guy comes to him with bread and with wine who functions both as a king and as a priest of the God, not of the moon God like Ur worshipped, not of the river God like the Egyptians worshipped, but the God of heaven and earth, verse 20, the God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram is confronted with his first ever fellow believer. And it's an awesome moment where they share in this meal a meal that the New Testament will use to show us that this mysterious and shadowy figure, this original priest who came not from the line of Aaron like all the priests that would come in later Bible stories, but this priest who was above them all as king and priest, that he was a priest like our Lord Jesus would be a priest, not dependent on human tradition, but appointed by God himself. You can read about that in the book of Hebrews, but not right now. you got to finish listening to this sermon. And so Abram sides with Melchizedek, a fellow worshiper. But to understand Abram's choice, you have to understand what the other one was. It was blue pill or red pill. This one was Melchizedek. This one was the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom was a big deal. He was in this list. Maybe you read it in chapter 14. I actually read it when you were sleeping. And he has come out of this victory big time. And so he wants to make a deal with Abram. Abram captured all kinds of stuff and people in his rescuing of Lot. And so this king did what all kings would do with a fellow champion he'd say, hey, let's make a deal. Let's do a swap. Let's do a first round trade. I'll I'll give you this guy for this guy. I'll give you this gold for that stuff. Let's do camels, donkeys, you know, the whole deal. And in this, there would be some kind of alliance that Abram was expected to make. And for Abram, it became a matter of faith. He didn't want God's promise to be at all intercepted or interfered with or in any way interrupted by human scheming and human involvement. Remember what God said. I will bless you And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. I will make you a great people. I will give you a land and you will be a blessing to all the earth. Abram already went down the Abram way when he made Sarah his sister instead of his wife and tried to fool and outsmart Pharaoh. Abram will not do that again at this point in the story. He's a man of faith. And he realizes that he has to decide who he is. And he is a follower of Yahweh. He is a man of faith. He will not go with the Sodomites. He will not go with this notorious sinful king. And the sin of this king is legendary all the way from chapter 13. It will come into clear focus in chapter 19. Abram wants no association with this man. He will only stay in allegiance with those who fought with him. That's the names at the end of the chapter, Aner, Eskol, Mamre. They're these Amalekites who uh, were on Abram's side. They're part of the promise that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse you. See, what happens here is Abram realizes who he is, and that's the battle of faith. That's the decision of faith. That's the discernment of faith. Yes, God will always protect you. He will always keep you. He will always preserve you. His people, but you will have to pick. You'll have to pick sides. You'll have to pick righteousness. You'll have to follow God and you'll have to align yourselves with those who align themselves with God. Look, it's not that Abram was some kind of Amish dude and he lived without electricity, though he did live without electricity. But you know, he's outside of this society. I mean, Abram was a big deal. He mixed and he mingled and he he engaged in commerce and he just knew that this was a choice that involved compromise or fidelity, loyalty, and allegiance. And he chose allegiance. That's what faith requires. There's this weird story I read from my ancestral homeland of New Mexico. It's neither New nor Mexico. And it's a story of a young man just a few years ago. His name was Matthew Prop. At least he thought that was his name. He was 21, 22 years old, not about your age. And he applied for a job in the penitentiary system in New Mexico. It's the only jobs they have there. That's where I'm from. And, you know, they do all the background checks for that kind of a thing. It involves your birth certificate, and they could not find his. And one thing led to another, and it turns out that his name wasn't Matthew Prop. But that's the name he'd always known. One thing led to another, and it turns out that his parents weren't actually his parents. He'd been kidnapped as a baby two decades before. Raised by these people, and his last name was actually Rossini. He was from New York. But these people, in kind of a child dispute, they were relatives or something, they took him. Uh, He was in their foster care, one of those kind of stories. Anyway, the details don't matter. Google it if you care. And Matthew Propp had a dilemma. Because it turns out his parents were actually kidnappers. This is a Disney movie too, by the way. Rapunzel, <laughs> let down your hair. It's kind of that, but anyway. <laughs> Matthew Prop had this moment of his life where he realized he wasn't who he thought he was. And uh, the newspaper tells stories of his reunion with his parents, you know, who he didn't know, complete strangers to them. The incarceration of his supposed father, a wild story, a weird story. But a story that reminds us that he had to decide at that moment, who am I? A bit of a crisis of identity. We started tonight by asking Do you think rightly of yourself? Do you think you're a small part of what God is doing? And I hope you've seen from chapter 14, if you're a person who follows God by faith, the unfolding of his story of redemption, the unfolding of his promise, which culminates in the coming of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection, and then his glorious church spreading throughout this world, consummating in his recreation of all things, that is the main story. America, an experiment. Political parties, meh. Geopolitics, so what? 20 million followers on Instagram, who cares? At the center of God's story is God's people holding on to God's promise and making choices that involve allegiance and loyalty and faith. And that's at the very center stage of what God's doing in this world. You can be assured of that.